Hello, I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, Senior Astronomy Educator here at Sydney Observatory. And I'll be talking to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of September. Don't forget that September is the seventh month of the old Roman calendar, but thanks to Julius Caesar and later the Gregorian reform, it's now the ninth month of the calendar. Now you're going to need a few bits and pieces to help you with this tour of the sky. Of course you'll need a printed copy of our star map which is available from www.sydneyobservatory.com or of course if you have your Australian sky guide uh, that's always a bonus as well. Now you need to wait until it's nice and dark. Uh, you need to get yourself into a lovely position where you can see as much of the sky as possible. Obviously if you're at the bottom of a hill or a valley that's going to restrict what you can see. But if you're up nice and high with a nice clear view for all cardinal directions, that will allow you to see much more of the sky and make things easier to find. We're going to start off our tour for September by actually looking up quite high into the sky and then we're going to come back down towards the west. So, first of all, find your view toward the west where the sun has just disappeared. You may have a slight reddish glow of twilight over there. But I want you to look up at about 45 degrees above the horizon, almost due west. This, of course, raises a slight problem. 45 degrees. Well, that's not too bad. Halfway up, of course. Overhead being directly 90 degrees up and horizontal zero. So 45 halfway up. There is a fairly easy way for us to navigate around the sky once we do have our cardinal directions of north, south, east and west. And that is to use your fist held at arm's length and your fingers spread from pinky to thumb tip and of course even a pinky held at arm's length. Now it varies from person to person but roughly speaking your clenched fist held at arm's length is about 10 degrees. If you're a big chap like me well it's a bit more but I've learned to accommodate that. So if you hold your outstretched hand at arm's length from pinky to thumb tip is about 15 degrees for the average size person. So we're starting off looking due west after sunset, wait till it's dark, stretch out your pinky to thumb tip and go three of those hand spans if you like up and you should be able to see the 16th brightest star in the night sky it has a slightly orange-reddish tint to it, and it's called Antares. It is the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius, although some people call it Scorpio. Scorpius is a fairly interesting constellation, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment, but we'll, we'll use Antares, if you like, as our starting point. This is a, a fairly interesting star because it's so big and because of its colour. Quite often people don't realise just how much colour is visible in the night sky. Most of the stars do appear whitish, but there are a few bluish and there are a few orange-reddish stars, and this is one of those. Antares means rival to Mars, because every now and then the planet Mars passes quite close by, and the two of them look fairly similar. Antares is about 800 times the diameter of the Sun, which means it's a very, very large star, and in fact its colour and its size tell us it's a dying star. It's located about 600 light years away from us, which means we see it tonight in September as it was 600 years ago.
rather intriguing. Within the group of stars of Scorpius, Antares represents the heart of the scorpion, and it is one of the easier pictures in the sky to see. So with a little bit of patience and a lot of imagination, supplemented if you're old enough by a glass or two of red wine, and you may just be able to pick out the giant constellation of the scorpion. A rather intriguing story goes with this group of stars. You see, there was a, a mighty hunter called Orion. And according to one of the more common myths in the sky, Orion boasted to the goddess of the hunt, Artemis, that he could kill any animal on earth. Now, although Artemis was a hunter herself, she also offered protection to all creatures on the earth. So she created the giant scorpion to deal with Orion. And the two went into battle. Apparently it was a fierce and mighty battle, one of such interest that it even caught the attention of the king of the gods, Zeus himself. Eventually Orion was killed by the scorpion, and Zeus placed the scorpion into the sky. Artemis also placed the body of Orion into the sky as a reminder for us mere mortals to curb their excessive pride, but she placed the two of the constellations as far apart as they could possibly be. So it's very unusual to see the two in the sky at the same time. This does, however, happen from time to time, but not at this time of year. So what you're going to look for from the heart of Orion, uh, Antares, is head down towards the west ever so slightly, and you'll come to a T intersection of stars. The middle star quite close by represents the head of the scorpion, and the claws go out to either side. Pass back up through the heart, and there's a star on either side, and then you'll follow the long hook-like line of stars that go around and form the tail with a sting. Scorpius, a large constellation, relatively easy to see, and is our starting point for our tour in September. In fact, we're going to go backwards at this stage and just drop down below uh, Scorpius, and so between Scorpius and the horizon, we're going to look for the three bright stars of Libra the Scales that make up, well, a triangle. They're fairly easy to see, and they have fabulous Arabic names. Zubin el-Ganubi, Zubin Eshamali, and Zubin el-Akrab. Now, my pronunciation may not be right, but effectively they mean the head and the northern and southern claws of Scorpius. You see, these stars used to be part of the giant scorpion, but they've been broken off to make up the scales of justice that the goddess Virgo carries. So Libra, the scales of justice, setting quite low in the west. Not so easy to see, but if you can make out a big triangle between Scorpius and the horizon, you've done well. At this point, we're going to go back up the sky, if you like, passing through Libra, passing through Scorpius, along an imaginary line known as the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the line along which the sun, the moon, and the planets follow through the background patterns of stars. The background patterns of stars that we're seeing at the moment, Libra, Scorpius, and the next one of Sagittarius, make up the path of the animals the zodiac as we more commonly call them. So at the moment we're almost looking directly overhead and we're looking for the mighty half man, half 
horse archer of Sagittarius. Look, I, I have to tell you, it doesn't matter how good your red wine imagination supplement is, if you try and see a half-man, half-horse overhead, uh, good luck. You're far more likely to be able to see, well, a teapot. So look overhead, let your imagination go wild, join the dots, and if you can make up an old-fashioned teapot, then you found Sagittarius. Those of you born under the star sign of Sagittarius may not like being demoted from a mighty centaur to a teapot. Oh, well, them's the breaks. Intriguingly, however, the teapot is very close to the centre of our galaxy as we see it. So, looking directly overhead at this time of year, we get a beautiful view still of Via Lactea. Via Lactea? By milk, the Milky Way. And it will branch off to the left and to the right, going north and south as we look at it. If you like, perpendicular to the line of stars that we've been following so far. The Milky Way is, of course, the brightest part of our galaxy, and we can see perhaps two to 3,000 stars, and you get this magnificent bright band of glowing stars and gas and dust as long as you're away from the city, as long as there's no bright moon anywhere in the sky to ruin the view, and as long as it's a lovely clear night. So, if you're away from the city, there's no moon and it's clear. Looking overhead, going from south to north, you should be able to see the Milky Way passing through the constellation of Sagittarius. So as you're looking overhead, by the way, the centre of our galaxy is about 26,000 light years away. And at the heart of our galaxy lies a super massive black hole. One of the most bizarre objects in the universe the one in the centre of our galaxy we call Sagittarius A star. It has a mass of many millions of times that of the Sun and is so big it can gobble up a star relatively easily. So that is directly overhead at the moment. Oh, and there's no need to worry. At 26,000 light years away, roughly, who cares what it gobbles up? It's not going to be affecting us. As we pass from high overhead through Sagittarius the teapot, we go along the ecliptic, down ever so slightly towards the east. We're coming to the next of the zodiac star signs, and that is of the half goat, half fish, Capricornus. Half goat, half fish? How do people come up with such bizarre creatures as this? You have to remember that many of these constellations have been around for thousands upon thousands of years. They've been made up to entertain and educate people as they sit around the campfire after a long day working out in the fields. So people would use the stars, I suppose you'd say, as a, as a palette, and they would make up pictures to accommodate stories, stories of heroes and villains, great deeds, great journeys. This particular pattern in the sky is used to represent a story of Zeus, Jupiter, king of the gods, who was effectively out on a picnic with a whole bunch of other gods when the earth cracked open and a demon from hell, Typhon, arose and began to attack the god Jupiter himself. Most of the other smaller deities did the obvious thing and panicked and started to run away. In fact, the word panic comes from this exact story. 
You see, the god Pan, the goat that played the Pan pipes, panicked and thought, well, here's a demon from hell. There's only one thing to do, and that is change into a fish and swim to safety. Halfway through the transformation, he realized that Jupiter, Zeus, needed a bit of help. He played a note upon his Pan pipes to distract Typhon, which allowed Zeus to gain the upper hand, and Zeus banished Typhon back to hell. As a reward for his assistance, Zeus placed Pan as he was, half goat, half fish, into the sky as the sea goat Capricornus. But what we're going to be looking for is basically a triangular group of stars. And if you're a real pedant with your Euclidean geometry, you're going to look for a triangle that has, well, a slightly bent hypotenuse. If you can see anything that looks like a bent triangle, or if you're a Star Trek buff, a little bit like the Star Trek logo, then you're probably looking at the zodiac constellation of Capricorn, half goat, half fish. The next of the zodiacs along as we head down toward the east is Aquarius. But Aquarius is a fairly difficult constellation to see. It represents the youth Ganymede, supposedly the most handsome youth on the planet that was snatched by the bird Aquila and carried to Mount Olympus to serve the gods water and wine. The only bright stars that we can see in Aquarius are the shoulders of the youth himself and the line of water as it flows from his jug across the skies that meanders towards the mouth of the southern fish Pisces Astrinus. So Aquarius, I'm afraid, is a fairly difficult constellation to see, snuggled up to and wrapped around the constellation of Capricornus. Don't worry too much because the next of the zodiacs rising in the east at the moment is Pisces, and Pisces is even fainter and more difficult to see. So these water zodiac signs I'm afraid, are a bit too hard to see at this time of year. But we're now at the stage where we're looking towards the east, and we're going to head around to our left as we look toward the northeast. And we're going to look for a group of stars that looks like a giant square. You'll find that astronomers, past and present, look for simple shapes and then give them rather curious and amazing stories. So we look at this giant square rising in the northeast. It's not perhaps high enough for us to see fully yet, but what you're looking at is the constellation Pegasus, the flying horse. We do need to wait perhaps another month or so to get it to its best. Continue towards your left and towards the north, you'll see a very large group of stars, if you have a clear view, that looks like a large cross much, much larger than the Southern Cross, if you are familiar with it. And once again, it'll be quite low, so you need a clear view. What you're looking at is Cygnus the Swan. And Cygnus the Swan is the home of the first suspected black hole, the first X-ray source found in the night sky, called Cygnus X1. And Cygnus is a very old constellation, one of the original 48 that were listed by the second century astronomer, Claudius Ptolemy. And of course it is one of the remaining 88 constellations that we have today. If we continue past 
Cygnus low in the north by northeast and around to almost due north, we're going to look for the fifth brightest star in the night sky, Vega. It's about 15 degrees above the northern horizon. Remember, 15 degrees for most people, a hand span from pinky to thumb tip held at arm's length. Vega is an intriguing star. It's only 25 light years away. It's relatively bright, as I said, being the fifth brightest star. And about 14,000 years ago, it was, in fact, the North Polar Star. If you're patient enough, um, it will be the North Polar Star in another 11,000 years. Although maybe that's a tad too long for us to wait. You see, everything changes position in the night sky. The stars may look fixed to us during our relatively short lifespans, but the stars are all moving relative to each other. But of course, also, the Earth wobbles. It goes through a 26,000 year wobble, and that's why the star will become the North Polar Star again many, many years in the future. Vega is the brightest star in the constellation of Lyra the Harp. Lyra the Harp is intriguing because of many stories that relate to Vega and a nearby star on the other side of the Milky Way as we see it, but not very far away at the moment, uh, and that is Altair, Eye of the Eagle, which is about 47 degrees above the horizon at the moment. So we go from 15 degrees from Vega up to three hand spans, you'll see another fairly bright star, not as bright as Vega, this one's the 12th brightest star in the night sky, and it has an equidistant dimmer star on either side. What you're looking at there is the eye of the eagle, Aquila, and that's the eagle that snatched Ganymede up into the night sky to become Aquarius, the water carrier. The bright stars Vega and Altair represent a young boy or a prince and a princess or a young girl in many Asian mythologies. To the Japanese, these two stars represent uh, a princess and her prince in a festival known as Tanabata, celebrated on the 7th of July each year. But very similar stories are told about these two stars in Korean and Chinese mythology as well. So as you're looking north, at these two bright stars, this is an interesting point in time to think about it. I've mentioned so far Greek constellations, I've mentioned some Arabic names when we talked about the stars of Libra the Scales, and now we have some Asian stories as well. You see, just about every cultural group on this planet look up at the stars and use them for two different reasons. They use them to work out the time of year, therefore to keep track of the seasons, and they use them to navigate, to work out directions. What we're going to do now is continue around toward our west, back towards Libra, although Libra should be a little bit lower than where we were when we first started. Continue past the setting constellation of Libra in the west, and we're going to go around to the other centaur in the sky. Yes, there are two two half men, two half horses. Uh, one of them was really nice. One of them was a bit of a party animal. We're coming around to the nicer of the two, and his name is Chiron, and he is the constellation of Centaurus. 
Centaurus will be getting quite low in the southwest. Centaurus was a tutor, a teacher to a heroes like Jason from Jason and the Argonauts, Hercules and Achilles. He's also wrapped around the Southern Cross. The Southern Cross will be on its side at this time of year and only about 20 degrees up from the horizon. So we're pretty much at the end of the Southern Cross viewing season. It'll be lost in the glow of the horizon or more likely trees and buildings. As the Southern Cross disappears into the southwest, don't forget that the Southern Cross doesn't sit at the South Pole. We actually use it to point to the South Pole, but it really is a bit too low for us to do at the moment. So what I want you to do is, if you can see the, the mighty centaur with its two bright pointers, which represent the front feet of the horse, see if you can see, according to our map, and it really is crucial that you do have the star map there, the half-man, half-horse wrapped around the Southern Cross, setting in the southwest. We're going to continue through the deep south because there's nothing terribly bright there at the moment and continue around now towards the southeast. I want you to look for the ninth brightest star in the night sky. It's a rather intriguing star called Achenar. It's also one of the flattest stars in the night sky. We only get a flat star. Hopefully you know that stars are not just pinpoints of light. They are in fact typically uh, spherical, although they do tend to flatten out around the top and the bottom because they're spinning. Well, this star, the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus the River, called Achenar, is one of the fastest spinning stars we've ever seen. It bulges around its equator about 50% more than it does around the polar circumference because it spins roughly 15 times faster than the Sun. It's about eight times the diameter of the Sun as well and it's relatively bright as I mentioned being the ninth brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus the river. Uh, interestingly in classical earlier times the name Achenar was given to a different star, a star that we now know as Theta Eridani or Achamar. Akamar, Akanar, they sound very similar. Um, what happened was, Akamar used to be the brightest star at the end of the constellation of Eridanus the river as it was visible from Greece. However, when people started to sail into the southern skies, they could see this nearby brighter star. They extended the river and changed Akanar to Akamar and gave the new brighter star the former name. Oh goodness me, confusing isn't it? But according to its old Arabic name, Al-Ahir Al-Nar means the same thing, the end of the river. As we continue past Akanar, we go towards the constellations which are extremely difficult to see of Phoenix and Sculptor. As we continue back around towards the east, to where we now see Pisces a little bit higher in the sky, but no less difficult to see. We need to give Pisces a little bit longer to get up. What we'll do now is have a look at some special events for September 2010. The last quarter moon will be on Thursday the 2nd at 3.22am.
The new moon will occur on Wednesday the 8th at 8.30pm. The first quarter moon will be on Wednesday the 15th at 3.50pm. And the full moon will be on the 23rd of September at 7.17pm. Remember, the best time to look at the moon is not when it's full. People call us constantly and ask to come along to see the moon at its best on the full moon. Uh, no. You see, when the moon is full, the sunlight is hitting it directly, if you like, square as we see it. There are no shadows. That means you can't see any of the spectacular detail that you can see at first quarter or last quarter. So the best time of the month to view the moon is the first quarter, and that will be on or around the 15th. We also have the equinox occurring on the 23rd of September at 1.09pm. Equinox simply means equal night. These are the two days each year when the sun crosses the celestial equator from one hemisphere into the other. This equinox for us, of course, the sun will cross from the uh, northern hemisphere back into the southern hemisphere and will signify the beginning of spring and the coming of warmer months. The stunningly bright goddess of love and beauty, however it should have been named the goddess of pain and horrible nasty things, uh, Venus will be seen low in the west shortly after sunset throughout the month. It'll move higher from the constellation of Libra the Scales up toward the constellation of Scorpius. On the 11th of September, the young crescent moon will be just below it. But hang on a second. Goddess of love and beauty, or more like the goddess of hell? You see, Venus is incredibly bright, and we tend to associate bright things with being beautiful. I mean, after all, look at the sparkle of a diamond, and I challenge anyone to say that they're ugly. But the thing is, Venus, despite being bright and twinkling and to us looking rather pretty, is in fact a nasty, nasty place to visit. The atmospheric clouds are so thick that the pressure they exert on the surface is 90 times that what you experience at sea level here. That means unprotected, if you were on the surface of Venus, you would be crushed and you'd end up thinner than a pancake. Oh dear. At 450 degrees Celsius, you'd also be somewhat toasty. The planet spins backwards compared to what we see other planets do, and the length of the day is roughly the length of the year, at about 220 days. It does rain at this incredible pressure and temperature, however, but mostly sulfuric acid. So why would it be called the goddess of love and beauty? Well, of course, it was named long before we knew what the conditions were really like. Nonetheless, it is a spectacular object to look at, either by eye, in binoculars, or through a small telescope. The rather unspectacular planet Mars, since it's already well past its best viewing for the year, will also be in the west just after sunset. On the 11th of September, at around 6.45pm, Mars will be just below the moon. Across toward the east, we'll be able to see Jupiter, the king of the gods, rising from around 6pm in the constellation of Pisces. 
Jupiter is well worth a look. Now, you do need a small telescope. Binoculars, if you can mount them onto a tripod, uh, you may just be able to see the four moons of Jupiter, and, and four of its moons, I should say, because it has quite a few of them, but the four larger moons named in honour of Galileo. The other thing is, the next few months is a really good opportunity if you have a small telescope or a good pair of binoculars, but they must be mounted on the tripod, to be able to see in the same field of view at the same time, Georgium Sidus. Aha, I hear you say, Georgium Sidus, George's star. Uh, have you heard of George's star before? Yes, you have. You see, George's star was discovered by Sir William Herschel on the 13th of March, 1781. And of course, it was named after King George. However, the naming of it after King George didn't go down so well with lots of people. And eventually, it was renamed as the planet Uranus. So here you have the opportunity to see the planet Uranus fairly close to the planet Jupiter throughout this month and the next few months in the same field of view through a pair of binoculars. Don't forget, if you'd like to get more information about what's visible in the night sky, you can purchase your copy of the Australian Sky Guide by Dr. Nick Lom or visit our website for more details at www.sydneyobservatory.com My name is Geoffrey Wyatt, the Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory and I hope you've enjoyed your tour of the September night sky. <laughs>